You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to UBC. If you've been here a bunch of times, we're glad you're here. If you're new today, we're glad you're here. Uh, I can't say this. How do I pronounce it? Well, I can't ask you to pronounce it. They'll know what it is. So I'm just going to guess. Just give me a minute if you don't mind. I'm sorry, especially if you're a visitor. I got to find where this is. How are you all doing? Good. I went to Hamilton last night. Yeah, I get the fuss now. I don't know. What's that? Well, I don't have that kind of money, Kieran. Speaking of musicals. Yeah. Peggy. Maybe. Maybe. Could work out. Uh, okay. Uh, let me jump ahead for a second. Not next week, the week after. We are in February. Uh, UBC is constantly trying to uh, appropriately posture a relationship with, with different months and the way to observe them. Uh, so it's Black History Month. That being said, my friend Sean Palmer will be here to preach on February 20th. Sean, you may remember, was one of the last people we heard from. Shouldn't have done that jump. A little out of breath now. Um, uh, before the, the shutdown two years ago. So we're super excited to have him back. He's at a, a sister church, Ecclesia. Um, and so it just uh, be ready for that. Uh, we also have a guest preacher next week, which I'll explain in just a second. Um, so I've mentioned a few times now um, that in the midst of this epiphany series, I've called it, we're talking about the implicit values of the church, things that are sort of silent conversation partners with the ethos that makes up what we do. And so uh, we talked about community, and we talked about authenticity, and last week we talked about a generous orthodoxy. Uh, next week, for the very first time in his uh, tenure as a employee here at UBC, uh, Brother Jameson will be bringing the word to the herd. And... Um, and that is because the topic next week is this other thing we charted it out when we were talking about these values in a staff planning session in February, which was the ancient future cultural. And we put those sort of together and he'll explain all that. So that just seemed a good thing for him to talk about since he um, both brushes up against that the most directly, consistently, but also because he had mentioned to me, I think sometime in the fall, hey, maybe I'll give a stab at the, at the preaching bit. And I'm like, by all means. So, uh, but that brings us to our sermon topic today, which is very simply coffee mugs. And uh, if that seems abrupt and unorthodox, it's because it is. So what are these coffee mugs that I speak of that make up the sermon title today? Uh, let me offer you a sampling. These, if, if you really don't know, we have coffee mugs in the back that people used to drink coffee with. Um, uh, my favorite is, is from the Tweet Mikasa. This is a, a former Mikasa that is now all gone. Uh, when we had our trunk or treat one year, they dressed up as the characters from uh, Arrested Development. And in their parting gift, they, they plastered their pictures uh, all over the coffee mug. Um, some of our mugs are festive, like this one that features Darth Vader and says, Merry Sithmas. Um, some mugs are opportunities to live vicariously through a life you've never had. And we have mugs like Captain America. Uh, others hold messages of encouragement, like this one, that reminds you to not let the muggles get you down. Some are nostalgic, like this one, which astonishingly, either somebody kept for 20 years before finally donating to UBC to be used, or somebody decided to donate their kids' artwork, which is equally grievous. So um, it was interesting in staff meeting when um, I brought this up. We always talk about the sermon idea, the sermon text. And um, I said, okay, we put coffee mugs down in our brainstorm session. What do we mean? 
Someone immediately talked about the origins of the coffee mug moment at the church. We used to have disposable styrofoam cups. We had a community group called Do Something. And what Do Something was was like the early works of our, I don't know, our, our social work effort here at UBC. It was people who were going to get out and find different ways to embody the gospel together. And this, of course, was an ecological concern that we were throwing away coffee mugs everywhere, coffee styrofoam cups. And so they, as a group, made coffee mugs, which were the first ones that we used here. Um, about a week later, I read an article about how the number one impending ecological crisis was actually water usage. And so we started running coffee mugs to the dishwasher multiple times that week. But, you know, you, you do what you can. Um, another person in our conversation pointed out that the coffee mugs feel very homey. You know, there's kind of a cheers feel about them, right? Uh, still another person said that the relationships... Uh, that the coffee mugs have with people is almost like a mirror. That people get very comfortable with a particular cup and they're indicative of the, the quirky nature of personalities that make up our community. I stated that while I thought all of those re uh, realities were present in the coffee mugs, um, I was thinking that they represented something more. Because when you walk in, the coffee mugs confront you. They are not disposable, they have a history. They are communal. They are made up now of a smorgasbord of donations of both current and former UBCers from over the years. They are incarnational, as we've pointed out. They're not disposable. They have their own histories with them. They, at the time, represented a different way of doing coffee in church. I don't know if that's still the case. I haven't been anywhere in a long time. Um, do I have the right page here next? I apologize. I look very unorthodox this morning. No, I don't. Uh-oh, so just give me one minute. I, this is very embarrassing. How in the world did this happen? I don't have page numbers. Isn't that terrible? No, I think I just moved the wrong page at the wrong time. Okay. Um, somewhere in the mix of, of this conversation, Jamie found language for for what I was trying to get to that felt elusive in description. He said the coffee mugs represent UBC's willingness to do things in an unconventional manner. Um, the seeds of this were in UBC's DNA from the very beginning of their story. Uh, before David Crowder was David Crowder and Chris C was Chris C, um, the two of them had started UBC as, as really college kids. And at the conclusion of that first service, I have been told, uh, they scandalized even the most potentially progressive Baptists when they played not any of the worship songs available to them, but instead Hootie and the Blowfishes Hold My Hand. Uh, now, 27 years later, when Jamie regularly includes, what, Leonard Cohen and Patty Griffin and Snow Patrol in the lineup, it hardly raises eyebrows, but um, I was thinking about this subtle value and where it's been peppered into our approach and the way we do church. It's on our bathroom signs, which are either a pair of superheroes or a friar and a nun, if you opt for the bathrooms over here on the left, um, it's the cloth walls and the Sunday school rooms that make them quirky. It's the Last Supper painting behind us with the mysterious apple that is in color, surely potent in theological suggestion, though still remains a mystery to this day. Uh, it was our willingness in 2008 to do a Sunday school based on a podcast. It's Jamie's unique and thoughtful lyrics. It's that in 2009, before she converted to what I like to call compassionate Christianity, we had a book club called the Beth Moore Experiment to see if anybody was still interested in evangelicalism. It's that when Toph crafted a special mo moment to commemorate my 10-year experience on staff, he let it off by handing me a 16-ounce can of Miller High Life. Uh, let me find another way to describe what I think is the coffee mug approach to doing church. Um, if we were to 
compare churches to, in church structures to movies. I think it would go something like this to give you a few reference points. Take Hillsong. Hillsong has weekly 150,000 attendees across 23 different countries, right? If Hillsong is a movie, it's the social network, right? It's a story of how one idea swept the world. Or you take something like your very standard First Baptist. Been around a long time. They know what they want to do. I think First Baptist churches are like the founder. You pretty much can count on what you get and what you're going to get no matter where you go. UBC, well, UBC is sort of a, a sandlot approach to things, you know? <laughs> hey, you want to play baseball today? Okay, let's go try it, you know, that sort of a thing. This, of course, is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, UBC's laissez-faire approach to church strategy is both gift and task. Uh, on the one hand, I have sat in meetings with multiple iterations of our finance leadership and HR teams, folks very capable and quite frankly recruited to be on those teams because of their clear gifting and successes in their personal lives. And when those aptitudes confront our non-traditional approach, they often find it maddening and not without warrant either. I've interacted with the IRS on a few occasions on behalf of UBC. On the other hand, I'm not sure UBC would have had the courage to not only have our conversations about same-sex marriage, but to affirm them if we were a well-oiled machine with a lot to lose. I hate to be cynical, um, but consider the landscape of Waco churches and the cultural climate of Texas, right? Not exactly Berkeley on the Brazos over here. Um, and I don't mean to indict any other churches or to elevate that one example above other theological choices that UBC has made over the years, but I do mean to suggest that this intangible thing that has shaped our ethos, the coffee mugs, the, the Baptist church with a St. Francis statue in the foyer, uh, potlucks with mimosas, all that freedom and risk, it comes with a price and we pay it. We pay it in the way uh, outsiders perceive our community. We pay it in how our relationship with the BGCT, and if I can be candid, with Baylor is, is basically marginalized. We pay it in our inability to attract affluent, mainstream Waco money. Uh, not all of you seem to be regulars at the Baylor Club, the Junior League, or the Ridgewood. Um, not that there's anything wrong with any of those places. Uh, my Dogecoin investment turns around, I'm gonna be at all three, okay? Uh, speaking of which, if you do have a Baylor Club membership, I, uh, shameless plug, wouldn't mind an invitation, you know, to go in. Uh, I love their chocolate chip cookies that they give you for free at the end. Um, I guess my point is this. There's a very direct relationship between our theological freedom and our cultural irrelevance. And shepherding those coexistent realities is a fraught art. Uh, and sh I should also acknowledge this. UBC is not without a history of privileges um, it was fun to have a nationally known musician on staff. Uh, even though we would all roll our eyes and pretend to be annoyed, uh, it felt really kind of like a privilege when youth groups from all over the country would come and stop in on a random summer Sunday to see David Crowder play. We felt special too. It was fun to be part of an avant-garde institution that was getting national attention when the emergent movement was a big conversation and flourishing. People wanted to know how UBC was doing it. But what became evident to me over the years was that those sorts of accolades and bells and whistles were exciting, but they weren't necessarily formative. What has stayed and what has survived and what I think has always been at the heart of UBC's DNA is that we didn't need permission to do things differently. The freedom to be quirky has always been present. And that fragile reality has paid us dividends time and time again. So where do we find ourselves? Where do we find this? Where do we find this story? in the story of God and God's story. In the book of Acts, 
which is really about uh, one exhilarating story after another. It's the story of a church discovering herself. It's the story of sacred cows being knocked over. It's traditions being broken and reinterpreted. It's a story of a Jewish chosen nation finding God outside of their borders and in the lives of other people. Uh, it's about finding God in eunuchs and centurions and pagan idol worshipers and how they all get into this new movement because it's a movement that is both free and unorthodox. It's a movement without a script, and that's because it is a movement of the Spirit. I've preached Acts 10 a few times in, in my 15 years of preaching, and I'm always very eager to get to the part where God includes Cornelius because um, of what that means for inclusivism and, um, and what that means really for us. But instead, I want to talk more about Peter's dream. Peter has a dream. And in it, a big sheet comes down from the heavens, and it is filled with uh, four-legged creatures, reptiles, birds appear, and a voice says to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Why is that significant? Because there's a bunch of stuff on that menu that is prohibited for Jews to eat. What do I mean? Well, let us be crazy and read something from the book of Leviticus. All right, in Leviticus 11, 13 through 19, it says this. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, no big loss there. The black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite. Any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk. The little owl, the cormorant, sorry, ornithologist. The great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, any owl from Hogwarts, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoo, and the bat. Now let's jump down to Leviticus 11, 29 through 30. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are the unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. By the way, because I was curious, and I think sometimes people take liberties, I went to the Hebrew just to see exactly how uh, chameleon is pronounced, and it is, just in case that comes up in Jeopardy this week. Uh, this vision becomes a metaphor for which Peter is about to experience. The suggestion that Peter should get up, kill, and eat which is to say to touch and digest an assortment of both animals approved and disapproved for consumption was a theological jarring one. Uh, let's talk about the law for a second. I think Americans at best have a pretty flimsy relationship with the law. Um, go around the room, I guarantee you if I could survey in a meaningful way, we would find that the majority of us get in a car, get on the highway, check out the speed limit, and without even thinking about it, add three to four, sometimes five miles to that speed limit. That's just what we do. Uh, I have been known to play uh, with friends at my house for real money. A few hands of Texas hold them. Is that legal in Texas? Well, that depends on who's asking. Um, then there are the rules that govern our society but aren't quite laws. Please shower before entering the pool. That way, the chlorine can perform a chemical peel on you without having to dissolve the grime first. Um, no talking in the movie theater. How in God's name am I supposed to follow the plot points of the Marvel Cinematic Universe if I can't ask my 12-year-old? And then the rules we make in our home. Uh, we currently have two foster children. They are two and three. And I have to tell you, I had forgotten about toddler logic. Uh, it's its own epistemic framework. It's a life philosophy that is basically governed by one principle. And it goes like this. Oh, you want me to do that? Screw you, I'm going to do the opposite thing. So basically, the only way to effectively motivate them is to issue a series of challenges in which you, the adult, begin every statement by saying, oh, I bet you aren't big enough to do this, fill in the blank. Sometimes as we grow older, we seem to have developed a sense that we've outgrown the rules. Uh, in the 1990s, Steve Martin made a pair of movies about the acute pain of, of raising and eventually letting go of your children, which we believe always belong to God anyways. 
Um, but in Father of the Bride Part 1, Steve is sent on an errand to pick up some groceries while he's already out of the house. And um, he's feeling the stress of, among other things, the impending financial strain of his daughter's wedding. So Steve decides to take the rules and break them. He puts them in his own hand. I'd like for us to watch this together. Would I mind escaping to the market and picking up something for dinner? Sure, that was all I needed. A busy supermarket. I needed to drive, mellow out, get my mind off the wedding. But mellowing out was not in the cards. Excuse me, sir. What are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I want to buy eight hot dogs and eight hot dog buns to go with them. But no one sells eight hot dog buns. They only sell 12 hot dog buns. So I end up paying for four buns I don't need. So I am removing the superfluous buns. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but you're going to have to pay for all 12 buns. They're not marked individually. Yeah. You want to know why? Because some big shot over at the Wiener Company got together with some big shot over at the Bun Company and decided to rip off the American public. Because they think the American public is a bunch of trusting nitwits who pay for Get things they don't need rather than make a stink. Well, they're not ripping off this nitwit anymore because I'm not paying for one more thing I don't need. George Banks is saying no! Who's George Banks? Me! Uh, why don't we just calm down now, sir? I'll tell you why we don't calm down. Because you're not excited. It takes two people for a we to calm down, doesn't it? Uh, that I don't know, sir. I'm just the assistant manager of a supermarket. But I'll tell you this. If you don't pipe down and pay for those buns, I'm going to call the police. Oh, right. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, right. That's right. Hey, right. Hey, hey, come here. Uh-huh, come here. Uh-huh, come here. Uh-huh. 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 That was the low point. Flipping out over four hot dog buns. As for me, sometimes... When I go to HEB, I'll do some tricky calculations. I'll come up with 12 to 13 items, but you don't want to know what I do? I go right in that 10 items or less line and check out. Sometimes when I'm in my car, I look down at my Google map on my phone. Sometimes when it says no right on red at Bosque 17th, I roll the dice. See who's behind those cameras if they're really looking and watching. A lot of the rules out there are moral suggestions for people who need some coaching in life. It's kind of a Slytherin philosophy, but I abide by it. Judaism is more sophisticated than all of this. Perhaps the biggest difference is that opposed to motivating with external penalties, observing the laws about loving God, it comes from within. It's about fidelity. Uh, we know that based on our reading in the New Testament, the three largest issues facing the early church community that was still very much Jewish was circumcision, observing Sabbath regulations, and food laws. They had to do things like exsanguates the meat. That's pretty good context, though, yeah? Yeah, how else? Uh, the definition is to drain an organ or something of its blood. So little they know is the sermon about eating animals. 
Um, okay, so these three things I just mentioned. To give you a sense of the enormity of this kind of fidelity, I'll share this. Um, uh, in 1 Maccabees 2, part of the Catholic Bible you and I don't ever get around to reading, there's a story of a sect of Judaism called the Hasidim. You might have heard of Hasidic Judaism today. Uh, it means pious, our loyal ones, who were so committed to Sabbath keeping, for instance, that when Antiochus Epiphanes and the other scumbag Gentile skinky soldiers would attack them on the Sabbath, these Jewish people would not fight back but choose rather to be slaughtered. Texans are like the opposite. If you make a law where you said you have to breathe, Texans will hold their breath and kill over and die, right? Uh, the Hasidim I just mentioned. Scholars have good reason to think that these are early ancestors of the Pharisaical tradition, which if not Peter's tradition, certainly the one he has the most exposure to. So again, here's Peter with this dream in which he's told to get up, kill, and eat. He's essentially told to betray the sacred rule and a tradition that prides itself on obedience. Uh, of course, the truth is, if we follow Peter's story through, he has trouble accepting this, even if it looks like he does on, on first instinct, because he goes, and sure, Cornelius gets into the, the door, he's included to the people of, of God, good news for us, again, 2,000 years later, but flip over to Galatians 2, where Paul confronts Peter, and the issue at stake is Peter's poor table manners. He doesn't want to be seen with his Gentile converts, brothers and sisters. Uh, one of the lessons that my mentor, Bert, taught me very early on in my pastor, pastoral career is that movements become institutions which become frustrated and consequently splinter off into new movements which recognize their institutional immaturity and consequently become an institution. Uh, so let me just take a second to point out how common this is in, in history. The, the great German idealist philosopher, George Wilhelm Fred, Frederick Hegel, did some interesting work on phenolendology of the spirit. And he talked about the zeitgeist, which means spirit of the age. And this can be any number of things. But what happens is that the zeitgeist becomes culturally dominant. It's a kind of thesis. And then it has a conversation partner, which becomes an antithesis. And out of the, the relationship of these two comes a new synthesis, which then becomes the new thesis, which then has an antithesis. And you see how this goes. Walter Brueggemann considers, um, or supposes that all of the Psalms can really be put into three categories. There are Psalms of orientation, there are Psalms of disorientation, and there are Psalms of new orientation, which then become Psalms of orientation. In nature, we see this in seeds, which are planted, they die, they splinter, they grow, they become or plants, which then have seeds, which die and grow. Humans have babies, which become adolescents, which proves that God has a sense of humor, which become adults, and the pattern keeps going and going. Or how about this one? Jesus was born of a virgin, lived, was crucified, died, and said, Joe, because I knew you Roman schmucks, I'm back from the grave. Movement becomes institution, the DNA is everywhere. UBC turned 27 last month. That was the canceled chili cook-off, I apologize. Uh, when I came on staff, UBC was 12 years old. Um, so when this place becomes so institutionalized that we begin hanging the pictures of the old white men who were former pastors on the wall, I want them to put a plaque under mine that says, hung on until the frontal lobe was formed. Um, I joke, but that's really what it felt like. When I came here in 2004, 90, 95% of this congregation was college students. Uh, there were three kids in the children's ministry that was the late kids. There were like two teenagers. There was no HR team. There was a finance team, but two of the three people didn't even go here. They just felt bad for us. Uh, the bylaws existed in theory, but nobody knew where they were. Uh, there have never been a committee to hire anyone. Uh, uh, they had info cards out in the front for visitors, but they were a prop because nobody ever looked at them when they were filled out. Um, and we probably would have gotten into more trouble with the IRS 
but there wasn't enough of a paper trail for them to prosecute or enough money for them to notice that we had a nonprofit status. It's basically where God would send all the Enneagram ones that didn't get into heaven. But this is what else I remember about UBC in 2004. It was a very carefree place. It was a place where big ideas were welcomed. It was a theologically curious place. It was a place that wasn't threatened. It was a place that didn't have a problem taking risks. It was a spontaneous place, a place that was easy to organize new efforts in. It was a place without much structure or bureaucracy. Uh, In my 15 years, maybe it's my fault, UBC, I think, has become more of an institution and less less of a movement. Um, And I'll be honest, someday, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 15 years, maybe in 30 years, Someone here, a bright young seminary student who is sick of the bureaucracy, will use this platform to start a new movement because this place just doesn't get it anymore. It'll happen. Movements become institutions which become new movements. And yet this version of UBC lives in the tension and abides. And this is the fraught work we do as a staff in consultation with the leadership team. We fight to hold this place that is elusive and special, a place that all know but can't necessarily locate, it's, it's the coffee mugs. It's the bottle of soap on my desk that was given to me as a gift that promises if you use it to wash your hands, all your sins will go away. It's the John Lennon picture in the rock and roll room with the zebra carpet around the corner from the statue of the Virgin Mary behind us. It's the irrelevance of the Hogwarts banners that hang in the youth room with their backs to this reverent cross behind me. And it's also the understanding that both of those can be tools of the holy, and of the profane. And while UBC lives in the tension of what it is and what perhaps it needs to be, we shepherd this thing that makes us us. The freedom to take risks and to eat unclean animals, the freedom to invite Cornelius in the kingdom, the freedom to invite our queer brothers and sisters back into the kingdom to which they already belonged. The freedom to put a well-placed cuss sermon in a sermon, or a well-placed cuss word in a sermon, the freedom to put masks on the Jesus statue, the freedom to try and fail, and the freedom, the exhilarating feeling of succeeding with the help of some extravagant grace. UBC, may we be a people who dream dreams of new possibilities. May we consider the command to break our own rules. May we shepherd this fraught reality that is between movement and institution. May we lean into freedom without becoming frivolous and into liberty without becoming licentious. And may we collectively shepherd this into what God has called UBC to be. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, um, we see that you, you give us visions. You ask us to dream of new realities. You ask us to break our own rules. And we see that in that rule-breaking, the Spirit abides and the Spirit leads. And um, for UBC and its, its movement forward, we ask that you would give us what you've always promised us, your vision, your hope, your presence. And so we trust, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching moment, we like to take time and sit together in silence and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. Let's listen together.